0: Well, and now as we approach the end of the summer, today is the last sermon in this series of sermons on the David cycle in First and Second Samuel. Some of you might be sorry to see our stories of David go, others might be happy that we will no longer have all of these tragic passages one after another after another. But I hope that even in this text that we can find a word from God that speaks directly to you this morning. And I take for my text this morning the fifth verse of the 18th chapter of 2 Samuel. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for the sake of my young man, Absalom. Please pray with me. God of wonder and mystery, we come before you tossed in various ways by the storms of life. Help us to find the calm center that holy place where we come face to face with you. Amen. It was the most trying time in King David's life, which is saying something given all that David had gone through. His own son, Absalom, had launched a rebellion against him, a rebellion that was years in the making. I can't imagine the pain and personal toil that that put him through. All that he had worked for in his life was at risk. The rebellion was so serious, it was so severe, that David had to flee Jerusalem for his life. David had been a fugitive before. In his younger years, he had fled from King Saul and survived as a bandit in southern Judah. This time, David was no longer young. This time, David was the king and under threat, not Saul. And hardest of all, the threat came at the hands of his own son, Absalom. It was his son, or it was his life, or it was his son's life. The final battle between the two armies was at hand. And yet, faced with a treasonous son, one who had torn asunder his kingdom, David's last words to his soldiers were to preserve the life of Absalom. It was a foolish order, one driven purely by emotion. With Absalom alive, there would always be the chance that the rebellion would be renewed. There would be people who would continue to plot and divide Israel. Many more lives were potentially at stake. Surely David knew this. On some level, he must have known that he had very little choice. And yet, he orders Absalom to be kept alive. He intentionally ignores the political reality of the situation. He wants his son back. He wants things to be like they were, like they used to be. He wants life to be simpler than it is. And he can't face the complexity of the situation, or the reality of his own position of power and its responsibilities. In the end, his general, Joab, makes the politically necessary decision for him. The other day, I was flying back from Boston, Comfortably settled into my middle seat. I was flying southwest, and I actually do like the middle seat because it allows me to sit in the front of the plane. It's one of the only times I can actually do that. And I had a book in front of me on the tray table along with my cup of community coffee and water. At a break in my reading, I glanced at the person next to me in the window seat. and noticed that he was reading a book called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Now, I have not read that book, The Untethered Soul, but being someone who does like books and someone who appreciates the soul and the various questions that arise concerning it, I couldn't help but say something. Looks like an interesting book. How is it? I asked. The young man next to me, it turns out, was a pharmacist who lives in Austin. He told me that he'd recently broke up with his girlfriend of many years, which had made him quite distraught. One of his friends had recommended the book and he also had a notebook beside him and mentioned that he was journaling for the first time in his life. Through that book and that journal, this young man was trying to make some sense of his situation. He wanted to find some path, some way forward. I introduced myself and my profession, we exchanged a few pleasantries, and then we both returned to our respective books. About an hour later, he closed his book and turned to me. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I have a lot of questions about religion. He had my attention. (laughs) Little did this poor soul know that I could talk about religion for hours. He had no idea what he was getting into. Go on, I encouraged him. We proceeded proceeded to talk for the rest of the flight, and I suggested that he seek out some churches in Austin and gave him several recommendations of, of particular places. At one point during our meandering conversation, he mentioned how frustrated he was with politics. He talked about the issues that he cared about. All the solutions seemed so obvious to him. Not surprisingly, he shared the views of the liberal circles in which he ran in Austin. People in Congress are too focused on partisan issues. Why couldn't they get more stuff done? Why couldn't they see what was so clear to him and just do their job? I nodded at this point. It's a common frustration. Then it occurred to me that his seeking after the simple solution was partly a reflection of what was going on in his personal life. There was all this confusion and anger and hurt, and he just wanted things to go back to where they had been. Why couldn't things be simpler? What was true of politics was also true of his life. I hear you, my friend, I thought to myself. I hear you we are faced inevitably with what can seem like a million things colliding in our lives. Everywhere we turn, we have to deal with the agonizing complexity that is life. It's true in our personal world and also in our professional one. In spite of this obvious complexity, it's amazing how often we, like this guy I met on the plane, like to try and make things simple, clear, somehow calmer. Something inside us yearns for black and white answers. We want to go back to the way things were in the past, much like King David and his son Absalom, even though the past, oftentimes, was no less complex than the present. It happens again and again. Why do we do this? Why do we seek out shelter in some imagined past or in an oversimplified present? The reality is that it's just plain easier that way. It's easier to hang on to one solution rather than face the dizzying complexity of the now. It's easier, but it's not true to life. Take the example from my discussion with this young man on the plane, a discussion about the political world in which we find ourselves. Each of us, each person in this country, has his or her own story. And in that story lie certain priorities. These priorities dictate our politics and our political leanings. For me, being gay matters for my politics. Also, being a follower of Jesus matters. But so does my social location as an educated person from a privileged background who spends most of his time in the bubble that is Montrose or in the bubble that is First Congregational Church. When I look at candidates and issues, my opinions vary depending on the issue, but they are rooted in who I am. This is true for every citizen in the entire country. Think of the incredible array of competing priorities and viewpoints that exists in any constituency. Imagine how complex it is to balance all of those views, to find some common ground that appeals to 51% of the people. Of course politics is messy, we live in a democracy. I mean, think of how hard it can be sometimes to get all of us here to agree on something in church, and we actually have a lot of shared things in common then magnify that across the city, the state, the country. And in spite of its obvious reality, politicians and those who talk about politics constantly try to oversimplify the dynamics of play. Deal gently with my son Absalom. I get the instinct, but it's not that simple. Take immigration, for example. Recently, those on the far left have called to abolish ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. Abolish ICE. I've seen that rallying cry again and again. It's easy to grasp why people have called for this in our troubled times. There have been many abuses by ICE agents at the southern border and elsewhere. One of my friends and colleagues in the ministry, Reverend Kaji Kaji Dusa, has been on the forefront of immigration issues in New York City, and she has detailed her very personal struggles with ICE and the injustices that she sees on her Facebook page. This issue matters to people. But to slide into the overly simplistic argument of abolish ICE, while rhetorically attractive, makes little or no sense in terms of public policy. In the United States, we do have a social welfare safety net. While that net is not generous compared to European countries, it is very generous compared to many countries around the world. To abolish ICE and to have open borders in the U.S. could create a situation where the needs of people moving here overwhelm our, com- our capacity to deal compassionately with them. Think of all the people who apply to get immigration visas to the U.S., Imagine millions more people entering the country every year. What would that do for the job market, particularly in the low end of the economic ladder? There is a reason why, when we had open borders before, there were lots of people in this country who lived in abject poverty and unions, particularly unions for non-skilled laborers, had no power. Moreover, inasmuch as we are a melting pot of different cultures, we still do have distinct cultural norms in our society. Some people are, perhaps perhaps justifiably, concerned that opening our borders to anyone would threaten the cultural norms that we hold dear. I tend to think this concern is far overblown, but you can see why people make this argument. What is so frustrating to me is that people on the extreme of the political spectrum want to make immigration simple. Both extremes create a mythical world in which we live. I know some people hate illegal immigration, but no, we're not going to deport over 10 million undocumented people in this country. It's just not going to happen. It makes no sense on about 50 different levels. Immigration in the U.S. is not a simple issue. We're talking about politics here. It's inherently complex, much like life. We might yearn for things to be simple. We might want to keep our son Absalom while also ending a rebellion, but it's not that easy. I remember coming across a meme several years ago that made me laugh because it spoke to our tendency to want to oversimplify things. It was in the form of one of those motivation posters that you used to see in doctor's offices and while lying there in the dentist chair looking for something to distract you. I'm sure you remember the type I'm talking about. They have a photograph, some sort of picture in the center surrounded by a black border, and then a motivational word in large letters with a short explanatory sentence underneath. Patience, excellent teamwork, that type of thing. Anyway, this image, (laughs) the image in the center of this particular poster was of a right triangle where the two legs of the triangle were three units and four units respectively there was an X by the hypotenuse, and then the instructions, find X. It's a simple al- algebraic equation, one one of the first things that any student comes across when you study the Pythagorean theorem. The answer to the common question, the answer of what X is, is five. In a right triangle, with little units of three, three, three units and four units, the hypotenuse is five units. <laughs> but this poster had some markings made to look like a pen, where someone, rather than do the math, simply circled X and said, here it is, And then the caption reads, again, simplicity in large letters, and underneath, the simplest solutions are often the cleverest. They are also usually wrong. (laughs) I did do that for some of the math geeks out there. I used to love math. When we think about the complexity of things more deeply, we realize that the complexity of our life and decisions is proportionally related to our power. Power is, at the most basic level, the ability to act, to have options, to have agency. The more power we have, the more complex our life tends to be. When is life not complex? When when is our path or the solution obvious? That's when we have few, if any, options for our solutions. Uh, If you're a worker on an assembly line, for instance, your job is intentionally straightforward. It's not that complex. You have no power to do anything other than what your boss tells you to do. When you have little money, how you spend that money becomes in many ways rather simple. You prioritize things like food, housing, and shelter. Running the finances of a household, while sometimes difficult, is far less complex than the finances of the city of Houston, or the federal government. The level of complexity is directly proportional to the power and scope involved. This is certainly true with the story of David and Absalom in 2 Samuel. David had to deal with, a tortured, and traumatized, had to deal with tortured and traumatized relations within his own family. These situations affect many people, Many of us in our own families. And I'm sure many of you had to struggle with children and their decisions. Many of you had to deal with strife among siblings and see how that can tear a family apart. You know how complex that can be. David had to deal with that in its most extreme form. Here was his son rebelling against him and threatening his own life. But David's situation is made far more complex by virtue of him being king. It was his kingdom, after all, that Absalom was after. Had he not been king, there would not have been a civil war. And the fact that David was king meant that he had to execute justice in the land, for David justice meant having to condemn his own son. Here is an example of the ultimate family strife made that much more severe by the power involved. Several weeks ago I preached on the toxicity of power, that power carries with it the real possibilities of abuse. One of the worst things we can do is ignore the potential toxicity of power and therefore blind ourselves to our own abuse of it. But power also makes things more complex. Even though we might yearn for simplicity, having power makes that even harder to grasp. For example, power differentials do make relationships more difficult. While in America we have this ideal that two people should share power equally, more often than not there are real power differentials in a relationship. These differentials can take the form of money. One person earns a lot more money than the other person, and that can create complexity. It can also take other forms as well, position in society, status in society, Sexual preferences, age, race, ethnicity, all of these can create power differentials in a relationship. Many of these relationships do work quite well when power is not equally shared, but the power issue adds layers of complexity that have to be navigated. I'm sure many of you know what I'm talking about. The reality is that we cannot avoid complexity and the potential storms and confusions that come with it. When we are buffeted by life's forces and yearn to oversimplify, we only add to our problems because our efforts to oversimplify blind us to potential solutions that lie before us. The more power we have, the more complex things are, and the more our tendency to oversimplify can not only do us harm, but also harm to those around us. We get obsessed with the one thing that will solve everything. We demonize one thing or person that stands in the way of things going right, whether that be in, our, in the personal or political realm. I must confess that I myself am as guilty of this as anyone. Being a minister involves balancing a wide array of things. You get to preach on a weekly basis. Some of you have to listen on a weekly basis. You have the pastoral concerns of the congregation. You want to be a good Christian and help make the world a better place. But that only adds to the stress and complexity of the the calling. Outreach to visitors, integrating new members, crafting ways to help us all grow in the faith, dealing with the endless boards and committee meetings, and a wide array of conflicting views about what should be done in the congregation. Particularly, this is true in a congregational church where there are lots of opinions. I can't tell you how many times I yearn to be able to just preach and teach and do pastoral work and nothing else. I want the rest of it to go away. This is a common feeling among clergy which is why so many of us shy away from administrative work from trying, or from trying to do new endeavors in the church. It's easier and simpler, simpler to keep your head down and just do the stuff you like. But ignoring the realities of the job does not solve anything. It won't make this congregation a more spiritually healthy and thriving place. Complexity, as much as I might not want to have to face it, is just part of life. Life is not easy. Sometimes we find ourselves in tragic situations, oversimplifying things, discounting the complexity, especially the complexity that comes with power, none of these things help. In fact, they often harm. Before coming back to Houston this past week, I left New Hampshire a day early so that I could meet with my old high school headmaster, Tony Jarvis, in Boston. I found out that his cancer had returned and he has refused any further treatments. He is ready to die and he's quite comfortable with that eventuality. It was great to see him again and to talk about all sorts of issues. Tony Jarvis was one of the biggest influences on my life outside my family. And one of the lessons that he drilled into all of us at school, one of the chief lessons from the literature of the ancient Greeks, he was obsessed with the ancient world. And the Greek was, uh, one of the big key lessons was that one of the greatest sins of human beings is hubris. In the Greek context, that hubris thats often defined as excessive pride or arrogance. And in the Greek context, it often meant arrogance that a human was somehow above the influence of the gods. Hubris was best illustrated in recent times in the lead-up to the 2008 financial crisis. Those who held power in our financial system thought that they were above the law or any failings. They could do whatever they wanted. They were, in Tom Wolfe's terms, masters of the universe. They also led the entire world into the greatest financial crisis since the Great Depression, and then had the audacity to claim that they never saw it coming. Their hubris had blinded them to the reality of what they were doing, They had great power and yet did not see the complexity and pitfalls of that power. And if there's one trait that we need when when we confront the pitfalls of power, when we confront the complexities of life, it's humility. Humility and honesty. Those were two things, by the way, that King David lacked. We need humility to understand that issues are complex and that the more power that is involved, the more complex they are for us. The story of David and Absalom is a tragic one. There's there's no real way to find the good news in a passage like the story of David and Absalom. It has family betrayal, death, grief, and civil war. And I haven't even touched on the family stuff that happened in the chapters before. Can't get a whole lot worse than this. But it does show us some of the complexity involved in life around us. The mark of an educated person not just in terms of formal education, but the education in the school of life, is to be able to appreciate and live in a world of complexity, a world of gray, a world with few certainties. Such a world is not always easy to navigate, but if we can approach it with humility and open-heartedness, perhaps we can be what this world needs at a time like this. Perhaps amidst the storms of life, we can find a way forward. Life is complex. Family is complex. To be grounded people, we need to live in that reality with humility and compassion.